Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 29 of the podcast, the topic is the future of computational media. It's a part one. Our guest is Chris Weaver, professor of computational media at Wesleyan University, director at Smithsonian Video Game Pioneers Initiative, and research scientist at MIT Microphotonic Center. In this conversation, which I initially had planned as a prep call, we go deep. We talk about Chris's early opportunity to shape the futuristic thinking at ABC, the television network, his pioneering role as a video game company founder, as well as his new role capturing the important recent history of video games. As we will discover, they are a key to understanding both the 20th and the 21st century. Finally, we talk about how and why to teach our kids about computational media and the great challenge of making the complexity of the scientific system communicate with a binary political system that always looks for simple answers. A word from our sponsor. Do you have business challenges where you would like high-quality external input from experts? Yegi is an insight network with access to on-demand teams made up of selected talent from thousands of experts across industries and markets, including financial services, education, software, energy, healthcare, and life science. Check out Yegi at archives.yegi.com. You've done so many things, Chris. Uh, I was fascinated by the fact that you said you'd been a futurist, you know, since the 70s. So does that mean you've been basically asked to advise uh, TVs, channels, and networks, uh, you know, steadily kind of on and off? Or have you actually uh, worked for them in, in some sort of extensive capacity, like consulting with them? Uh, I've done both. I mean, both. Um, when uh, in no particular order, um, you know, when I got out of school, my areas of interest at the time were in sort of advanced communications, which in the 70s, yeah, was actually something kind of cool. <laughs> yes, for sure. Most of the stuff, most of the stuff that we're uh, dealing with today, including the one-on-one uh, -on -one conversation we're having right now, simply couldn't couldn't have existed. Yes, right. True, because it wasn't until uh, uh, 1989 that uh, ARPANET was uh, basically eliminated, and uh, NSF really started reallocating. Tim Berners-Lee. Uh, created what would later become uh, the worldwide net until yeah. you know 1991. So the point is, is that at the time everything is context. Yeah. And I was busy advising. Well, I mean, I started out um, at ABC as a as a person in research. Um, and I, I won't bore you with the whole story because we're really here to talk about kind of the uh, areas of interest that I have but since you started down that weird pathway. Um, yeah, it was just uh, it was just the first thing that struck me. Yeah. You know, there are so no, no, many. The things. reason I was saying this is, um, I had maybe one of the best uh, ultimate job hirings and interviews. And I apologize in the background; it sounds like a dentist's office because some work's going on in my house. Um, I had a guy named Marvin Lord who was the head of research for ABC corporate, and I went in with my resume, and yeah. I had a pretty weird resume. Um, 
you know, I was, I was kind of annoyed. And uh, he looked at my resume and he looked at me. I really had no, not real job experience. And he said something I never forgot. I used it later on in places like Bethesda yeah. uh, in terms of influencing me. He looked at me and he said, um, you know, I, I don't have a job for you. <laughs> um, he said, but I have the weirdest feeling that if I don't hire you, I'm going to be kicking myself in the ass. He said, so you're hired, but I have no idea what you're going to do. Just come on in, look around for a few weeks, and then you tell me. And uh, I, I, won't, I won't bore you with telling you what I happened upon doing for them early on, but it ended up getting him um, a lot of praise from, from the higher-ups because ABC started running away with a certain category of things that their competitors weren't doing. Anyway, the point is, is that he was a great boss because he sort of saw potential, but he wasn't exactly sure where the rocket was going to land. Well, and, those are the best and very rare, may I say, bosses yes. that, that are willing to do that. That, that was right. a very cool start for you, for sure. That's yeah. very cool. Very yeah. interesting. And, I, and, and, and that's kind of why uh, I had mentioned it only because um, Marvin was a wonderful boss. Uh, ABC was a great place to work. Yeah. Um, I ended up creating the, uh, the, I became the manager of the Office of uh, Technology Forecasting for ABC and created that office. And so um, they were very open. Uh, those were the days when a single person was the chairman of the board and, and owned the company. Yeah. Okay. So it was, it was a different time. But in yeah. any event, the point is, is that we got them into new tech, including cable and satellites. Yeah. Okay. So it just goes to show you, you know, how kind of you can be sort of a, you know, a, a virtually nondescript worker who simply happens to have some expertise and in the right medium, uh, you can grow many wonderful things. You know, I'd say so it, a lot of it has to do with context in terms of managers who understand that um, you don't have to be afraid of people who may be different than you are as long as you can take advantage of their unique differences. So it, it's kind of always influenced me going on later. So. I, I like that. Um, the funny thing is actually that this is typically my question number one, because, you know, everybody I interview, they have done so many exciting things. And I'm not one of those that starts to list everything people have done. But I, I list a few things and then I simply ask, you know, what, what has influenced you the most or what, you know, what one thing would you like to share? So, you know, you could share this or the other thing. That sounds like a very... Uh, influential part of your career, even though I would have sort of never really thought about that when I look at the latter 20 years of your, or, you know, or more of your career, right? That's right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's like all of us, you know, I was uh, talking to Ken and Roberta Williams, um, the creators of Sierra Online, uh, for a very long period of time over the, over the last week, because, um, and this is kind of what I want to talk about. Uh, yeah. Uh, as you probably know, um, I've been I've been uh, tapped to be the co-director of the Video Game Pioneers Initiative at the Smithsonian. Yeah. And that's a to to my mind uh, that's one of my most important projects in addition to teaching because there's never been any business and certainly never any technology business that's had a very material effect on society that has been documented in a way that allowed the people who actually created the industry 
right. to be on the record. In other words, we have a huge amount of anecdotal information and supposed experts, but we rarely hear from the actual individuals themselves. And the, the thing that uh, to me was kind of inspiring in a, in a strange way is that in 1899, uh, Orville Wright wrote to the Smithsonian Museum. And we know this because we actually have this handwritten letter. And he writes to the Smithsonian and he asks if the Smithsonian could make available to him whatever material it has on lighter than air vessels, you know, in other words, things yeah. that potentially could fly. Yeah. And the Smithsonian responded by sending him, you know, some basic material that they had amassed at, for the time, you know, of, of uh, Lilienthal and, and many of the engineers in Germany and other places. They were kind of more advanced and than the Americas were in building flying machines. And in, in 1903, Kitty Hawk occurred. And we don't have anything between right. those critical period of years. Right. Right. We just have anecdotal evidence and some diaries and people talking about it. And so we're, we're robbed of the unbelievable depth of what must have been going on in the world at that time. And we can't sufficiently answer the question about how do two brothers, virtually uneducated brothers in the middle of the country who basically were bicycle makers, beat everybody else in the world to create a true flying machine? How did that occur? And the answer is, regardless of all the anecdotal evidence from the, from the mouths of them themselves, we don't know. So that's kind of the, the impetus behind the Video Game Pioneers Archive. You know, video games are now larger than music and the movie industry combined. Yeah. And with, and with COVID uh, sort of acting as a, as sort of a, a lead here in the sense of being sort of a culturing medium, accelerating the growth of this kind of medium, this idea of, of at-home participation and certain types of entertainment or simulation or training or education has never been greater. And we, we can't afford to forget the people upon whom all of us are standing. I, I Yeah, you have a fantastic point. That I'm so uh, excited that the Smithsonian took this on. That I mean, it's it sounds pretty obvious when you point out, you know, I mean, I also know it's a 120 billion industry and who knows where it's going now after COVID. But um, I guess the internet is the only other industry where we have some access to the founders. Although we have access to people like Vince Cerf, who I know, we don't have access to Doug Engelbart and uh, and the Ernst von Neumann, which who I would really like to speak to. I mean, I you know, arguably, you know, that's where the real magic happens. So those guys just aren't around. True, uh, for, but I mean, uh, Tim Berners Lee is still around. Bob Metcalf is still around. You true. Know, so so yeah. people could, as you said, the surf is still around. So you could get some of the information. Yeah. The interesting thing about the video game industry is that overall. Most of the people who created it are relatively recent, and so they're mostly still alive. Yeah. And uh, uh, a couple of Novembers ago, we did the Space War event at the, uh, at the museum, and 
I have to tell you that it was, I mean, Variety did some very good stories on things like that. But the, the salient issue is, is that, and I didn't even know this when I put it together, of the eight original creators, seven are still alive. We got wow. all seven of them to come to the Smithsonian. And we even got Jack Dennis, who's in his 90s and was the professor of uh, RLE at the time at MIT, who was in charge of the first PDP-1, the tech gave to MIT. And Jack Dennis came down that night, too, and ended up coming on stage and sort of taking a bow and having the foresight to let these crazy guys play with a new piece of uh, hardware. But... The reason I'm saying this is, is that I didn't realize it until that night. But because of the nature of the way people were working in the 60s at MIT and in, in uh, at the railroad uh, club, um, they had never been in the same room at the same time. Well, seven of them. Wow. So it was a first for them at the same time that it was, it was a first for us. And I invited a whole bunch of my friends from the industry because I thought they might be interested. And I got to tell you that what was fascinating was that we had an unbelievable number of industry people come out to pay homage to, to these crucially important people, to yeah. the industry. And it was a really wonderful night for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is you had everybody from David Crane to Al Alcorn to... Todd Howard, to, I mean, you name, you name it, they were there. Yeah. And they all came to pay homage to these people, not one of whom ever really made a dime from the industry. Uh, it's incredible. It was, it was an incredible night. It's an incredible night. And, and the uh, video of it uh, is in the archive. Hmm. So it seems to me then, Chris, that uh, it makes a lot of sense to, uh, to kind of perhaps frame this as almost like the past and future of video games, but um, at least mention video games in the title and have that kind of as our lead motif, but then go in and out of what that means for generally for the future of where we're all heading. Because as you know, you know, what I like to focus on is obviously what people have done, but then I I have this particular focus kind of on just the next decade and, and all kinds of things that might emerge. But I think it might make sense then to just take this video game. Um, you know, you can talk about, I guess, both what you have done and the, and the games and stuff that you have been part of developing. And then we can take the Smithsonian initiative and then forecast a little bit. I, I realize that's a backcasting type of effort, which is super important. And then we use that to, to perhaps think about what you just said about COVID. And, and, and I'll ask you some questions about where you think it's going. I think th- there are a couple of questions I was going to just throw at you so just to hear you know, what, what you might think around them. One is sort of this whole idea that, uh, well, first of all, there's this debate on what are video games really doing to people, right? There's this whole negative, positive debate, but whether they are emancipatory or actually damaging. Um, I'm assuming you are squarely in one camp on, on that side. But if I throw out that kind of question, you know, is that a, a fair question to, to have a little discussion on? Well, so let me, so let me walk this back a little bit and then you'll understand my answer. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
These days, uh, in terms of my teaching, some of which you know because of your association with MIT, although uh, ironically now at MIT, I actually uh, lecture strictly on the engineering side, on the microphotonics and principles of engineering side. Um, and, I, and I really do my big uh, computational media course at Wesleyan now for a yep. couple of different reasons. But the, the way that I've sort of come to digest and understand my uh, early participation in the video game industry is really not focused on making video games. Yeah. Um, what I've come to understand and realize after a long history of, of kind of early involvement in the video game industry is the potential of the way that video games work in terms of our bio and neurophysiology is so potent that if you can utilize it for beneficial social purpose, in other words, understand the tools, but to use it for a slightly different or amplified social purpose, the, the potential is even greater than the video game concept alone. And what I mean by that is, you know, we don't have these discussions about the benefits of electricity anymore. Were we living in the time of the 1920s, the 1930s, we would possibly be having a discussion about electricity. Does it kill people? Doesn't it kill people? Should it. it be allowed into homes? Shouldn't it be allowed into homes? Yeah. Because what, we under, what we've come to understand is that the issue is not electricity. The issue is what you do with electricity. And I think that's the important takeaway, which is that yeah. the, the, the potential of video games and the way they work is so vast right. that now that we have a third generation of people who've grown up expecting to play video games, playing video games, having access to video games, having access to hardware and software, the wonderful thing that I see from my vantage point is I see all these people, many of whom were my students, yeah. who are out in the world using what they've been taught and learned to, to advance the whole scale of what the concept of computational media means. And that's really what I consider my big thing these days, which Got is it. not video games per se, but computational media. What can we do with it? You know, I think, well, personally, I am extremely fascinated by the potential of a multi-sensory stimulus upon cognition and learning. So I, so those are the kinds of conversations I really want to pursue with you. For instance, um, I think that I would really like to hear your opinion on why is it that an entire strand of AI, arguably, um, some of my guests would claim, I have one that's coming on soon who claims that all the oxygen is currently going to one particular focus. And he's not thinking about uh, video games, but he's thinking about the mainstream of computer science these days, which he feels is so stuck in one version of deep learning that they are, well, first of all, not seeing language as such. And they're also not seeing multisensory things. And they're so stuck in a very limited version of the brain metaphor that they fail to see that this actually, that computational media potentially gives an access to, you know, if you think about the whole IOTs and the stuff that you've been doing since the 70s. So, so these are the kinds of things that I would really like to, uh, to explore with you. Um, 
are we now finally, I would say, at the cusp of, of a time in history where we are finally able to capture some of the lessons um, from the exploration of video games and other multisensory activity into <clears throat> learning outcomes, into truly you know, advancing cognition and, and, and many other things. So, I mean, this may not be the next decade, but I'm curious. How long is this going to take? Because there, I agree with you that the essence is in, in that application. It's in the wider application of this kind of infrastructure technology that you call it video games. I wasn't quite so specific. Uh, m maybe that's what, that, that is the killer application that's going to foster all this. I mean, do you think so? Or do you think it, it, I mean, other strands that you've been working on, like telco and IoT networks, I mean, there are a lot of other sensory capabilities now coming online, uh, but are they necessarily connected to the medium of video games? Or do you see it in a much larger panoply of, yeah, I, of things? I see it in a much larger pattern. That's why I, I almost never use the term video games anymore. Okay. I always use computational media okay. uh, because if you think about what computational media is, video games is a subset of computational You know, it's so funny. You, this is going to be interesting to my readers because computational media to me is very archaic. I love that you're using it because I see that for you, it means something much wider. I think people's ideas of what a computer is these days is that it's actually something old that needs to go in a museum because they... And even media is not a term, I think, that people fully appreciate anymore. Why do you use computational media? That's probably going to be my question. Because I want to force people to think about the derivation of what it is we're doing. You yeah. know, there, are a lot, there are a lot of buzzwords that people like to throw around. And yeah. I find that generally the biggest buzzwords come from the people who know the least. Yeah. Because right? they always love to hide behind the buzzwords. And I'm kind of, I wouldn't say notorious, but I'm pretty well known, especially with students and others, to challenge them by simply saying something is kind of specific as, well, that sounds very clever. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's undoubtedly, uh, no, I, I mean, and that doesn't surprise me at all. And, and even at very high levels, you can get so entangled in, I would say, like smaller paradigms, like tiny little things that block right. your mind, right? Well, you know, look, um, it's part of a larger conversation, but uh, yeah. uh, there's a uh, there's an academic uh, wolf who has basically uh, decided to take it upon himself to create a taxonomy of video games and, and various types. And I show it to my students in part of the class, along with some other things, to kind of demonstrate what I consider sort of an interesting um so do you remember there was a there was a movie in I think in the seventies called Koyaanisqatsi, which is a, which is an Navajo term for life out of balance. And the interesting thing is is that when people are familiar with certain areas and they get involved in other areas, they want to somehow transfer what the new thing is to their comfort level of using their old things to interpret it. It's very common. Uh, but what's interesting about it is, is that what I find is that by forcing people to think about how do these things work? In other words, I can tell you about parahippocampal issues. I can tell you about Sergio and Vivian Pellis in terms of the limits of neuroscience. 
I can tell you about spindle cells and how spindle cells dramatically magnify the amplification effect of, for instance, humor in crowds as opposed to humor alone. These are all things that uh, psychologists and and, uh, neurobiologists are beginning to understand. The larger issue is, is that if we want to try and take advantage of how to use these biophysical and neurophysiologic effects, we have to understand something about them in order to get a computer, arguably one of the dumbest devices ever manufactured on Earth, to do something intelligent. And obviously, the intelligence comes from the people who program the computer. And the more that the people who program the computer understand about both how the computer works and what the effect of what they're doing will be, the greater the amplification of the overall effect. So to that point, my sort of current area of of subspecialty is I take primarily undergraduate students and I teach them to be really pretty good in a developmental language, in this case, Unity and developmental platform, and to use Unity in conjunction with their areas of interests in science and education, technology, and math, STEM, and to basically apply what they've learned in a way that makes reasonably complex concepts accessible to children in second to fifth grade. The reason that I say second to fifth grade is that if you look at the Piaget curve, this is arguably one of the most important time frames that a child has in their lives to be influenced. I have and, two kids in that time frame. It's a, you're right. It's a fascinating time. Right. It's a wonderful time frame. Now imagine, now see, let's use you as a good example, Tom. Because, you know, we know one another personally. You know, I know something of your background and some of the places that you've been, some of the things you're interested in. I have to believe that your children have been exposed to that, if nothing else, osmotically. Yes. So the so the self-expectation of your children is, oh, I could be like daddy, I could be a writer, or somebody who's interested in engineering, or science, or new technology. You see, they're not self-limiting because they have the benefit of an environment that allows them to dream, to, to be creative, to think of themselves as something that they don't fully understand. Yeah. But imagine if you came from an underprivileged background where sure. either your family structure or your living arrangement doesn't provide that kind of input on a daily no. basis. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's incredible. My, my, my father of all things, you know, was a cognitive psychologist. And one of the very, sur- not surprising, but just very odd questions that he used to ask in his questionnaires in terms of sort of family background was how many books do you have in your bookcase? And it, it was, it's an, in, it, in Norway, uh, over the last 30 years, it is an incredibly predictive question. Now I would say this was now 15 years ago, we would have to adapt the question, right? So it, it would be more like, and who knows exactly how, how it would be adopted. But if you just think about me, I mean, look, look around me, right? I mean, I have 3,000 books or 4,000, whatever it is here. And I'm old fashioned, but, you know, th- there's, so there's a new version of that. It would have to do with, you know, maybe computers. It would, you know, be other things. But it is incredible how even the physical fabric of what you surround yourself with, and obviously then which translate into what you're talking about, that becomes the limits of what I think 
uh, kids can dream about, or at least, uh, at least it becomes much more uh, reasonable that they would dream in those directions when they see right. it and hear it. And even if I'm not actively arguing, they should get into these things. Like you said, it's an osmosis. So, All right. So this is what I mean. So, so when we talk about this, so one of the big pushes that I'm doing now in university is I'm getting my students, all these, you know, 20 year olds who of course know everything and are immortal. They are to design something for a group that they think they know. Oh, because, because they were course, just younger themselves. They were They're younger close themselves. Enough. Yeah. Yeah. And then they find out much to their surprise and occasionally horror that they don't. They completely forgot what it's like to be six, seven, eight, nine. And yet they're designing for these kids. So I get them to read academic research information, and then I get them to go into the field and do actual field research. And the discord, the discordance between it is so great, so vast, yeah. that they come back shell-shocked. And then wow. they have to redesign, because I told them it's sort of like Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons, uh, you know, American cartoon from the 60s and 70s, which was sort of designed on a, on a variety of levels. If you were a five-year-old, you saw one thing. If you were a 25-year-old, you saw another thing. And yeah. so what I get them to do is to have the complexity in their software development to be able to create these things for kids so that the whole design is we go every year at the end of the, so I teaches my term is 15 weeks. So in week 13, we go to a local school with whom I have an ongoing relationship. And the local school, to put this in perspective, has 90%, 90% of their children on federal lunch program. And we go into that school and we should, we have basically a carnival, a fair for, for half of one day that the teachers bring every one of the grades. They stratify the grades, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. And they bring these kids in, in about 45 minutes apart from one another, to play the games that the students have made to teach elemental aspects of science. And then they film them, they talk to them to understand how the kids react. The first year I was warned by the principal that as interested as they were, and they were going to make the school available, that I shouldn't expect too much. Mm. The first year, that was five years ago. And every year now they've invited us back because they've seen something in these kids that they hadn't seen before. This, this total immersive concentration on, on what the kids are doing, what my kids are doing. So the point is, is I have, I have these kids who are looking at everything from astrophysics principles to um, uh, electricity and magnetism to biology and the way that uh, antigen and antibody concepts work, right? These are very complex concepts, but they're done on a level that the kids will be able to access. And by accessing them on their level, these kids are transformed while they're experiencing these games. And we get them at this critical age to try and appreciate the power of what this, what this would mean to them. Mm. And so that's, that's really become kind of my passion in the sense of you want to use video games for a social purpose. This is one hell of a good way to do it. 
It sounds like it. Look, I mean, Chris, this is one example of, uh, I mean, we're recording. I, I, I'm going to listen to this because I'm convinced of some of what you, you just said. I mean, it's, uh, you know, this, this, uh, hopefully I, I can share some of it and I'll, I'll, I'll check it with you because it's, uh, you're already obviously start, starting the interview. So there are so many interesting things you, you, you just brought out. Um, I'd like maybe then to just uh, close this off here uh, with uh, just a couple of more instructional things. I, I love our discussion and I think it's going to be great. Is there is there any chance I could get you to use uh, some sort of headphones and perhaps like some sort of external mic? Either way, I think the sound actually is 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 good. But do you uh, do you have any other setup or at least uh, maybe some earbuds or something that I could have you use? Well, I have earbuds in right now. Oh, you do? Because, okay, yeah. that's, yeah. yeah. It's okay. tough to see. Yeah, 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 I believe you. There um, you go. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, no, because I wasn't so, really sensing any echo, yeah. so I was a little surprised. So that's great. All right. Well, in that case, um, we're, I think we're... One thing we're I will do for you is I'll go grab a few of my lights, depending upon the time. Yeah, this. that might be, that was so, going to be my question. I was just say the afternoon, if, do you do this all the time in the morning or when? No, whenever. Uh, you no, know, and so I'll send you a link So maybe we do it in again. the afternoon, yeah. because that way the sun that's over there is over there and yes. it and there's a lot of natural light yep. but um okay so let me just leave you with a couple of things yeah uh these days i sort of stay away from bethesda yes i created bethesda yes bethesda is doing very well blah 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 okay yes i'm still a very large stockholder in bethesda yeah but i don't go into bethesda for a couple of different reasons um it's it's not where my head is relative to video games it's kind of how one of the areas that i came to prominence in terms of you know how people know me, but it's like, who is it? Who is it who, um, trying to remember who is it who was on, uh, I think was it Bonanza? It was some cowboy show and they wanted, I forget what the actor's name was. And they wanted to hire him for a space epic. And he always had trouble overcoming people's perception of him as a cowboy father or something. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's like, I've always it, seen myself. It reminds me of a colleague of mine who worked at Oracle, who was the little, the smallest kid in the house, a little house on the prairie. <laughs> and he was go. trying to go. point out to people yeah. that I'm, right. you know, I'm a public policy person. At Oracle. Right, right. So the point is, is that, you know, everybody always does it. And they'll say like, hey, you created Bethesda software, didn't you? Yes, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, great. But other than that, it's like, okay, so what are you doing now? See, it's more from the standpoint of, I'm proud of the stuff I've done in the past, but, you know, other than informing what I'm doing in the future, you know, these people who like crested when they were 18 years old, oh, I was, I was the quarterback on my high school team. It's like, okay, that's nice. What have you done with the last, you know, the rest of your life? Yeah. The rest of no, it. I get that. But I think you, you would also appreciate that, you know, over a 45 minute or, or, or more podcast episode, people get a much fuller perspective. So I think you should be less afraid of having a, a 10 minute discussion on Bethesda on a podcast than you should, you know, in a quick little quip uh, interview, because I think it's going to be very, very apparent to, to most people that this just goes, it weaves into a small part of the big sort of uh, pattern that you've been, uh, that you've been working on that is, you know, goes far beyond, but it is interesting in and of itself. The fact that you, you did have a formative 
role at the very beginning, but also since this company has been so successful, now it's still shaping part of the industry. So, I mean, it is, it's going to go into the Smithsonian, clearly. That's partly why you're there. So I think it is relevant, but I, but I completely appreciate what you're saying. And I think these, um, these biophysical effects and the fact that you are reflecting on it at a completely different level than, you know, many that I could get to talk about computer games, you know, definitely adds a, a completely different element. Yeah. Is there no, any, is, I was going to say, I'm many of the guys that I trained and hired are still there. Oh, that's all I do. One of you, but, um, in terms of the company, luckily the downstairs and the upstairs have stayed reasonably separate. Yeah. And I put together a lot of the downstairs, so I'm proud of the downstairs. Bethesda was a very engineering-oriented company, and it's in in some respects stayed away from the goose enough to allow occasional golden eggs to be to be made. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. All right, so uh, I'm going to only leave you with uh, uh, prepping for for one thing. First of all, I'm going to send you the the rough draft of the questions that I may or may not get into because, as you know, th these conversations they will simply flow. But at, towards the end, there's one thing that I just wanted you to be prepped for a little bit. I I always ask, you know, once we have talked through everything, I say, well, how does how does my listener how, how do I track these things and how do you track these things? So, so that's a question to maybe be prepared for. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, is there, is there some source, some podcast, some newsletter, some particularly insightful way? Are there a set of courses, maybe what you've done, uh, you know, maybe there's a Udemy course or anything that will get people on the right track in terms of the kind of stream of consciousness that you would have developed through the interview. So in other words, you know, computational media, what does one have to do to really try to be at the forefront of, of imagining what it might be in the next decade? So just be prepared for that question so that, you know, if you do think that, for instance, it's very possible that you deny the premise of that entire question. Well, forget it. You, know, you, you can't just look at three things and, and know anything. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I wrote it down and I'm sort of interesting, but um, I mean, for, for somebody like me, uh, my recommendation, I realize you may have your, your ethnographic, that may be your ethnographic question, which your father would tell you was your measurement question. In terms exactly. Of derivation. exactly. I, I get it. I understand. But other than the ethnographic aspect or analysis, my larger issue is, is that where do I think, you know, what's its potential and where can it go? You know what I mean? Yeah. In other words, what's the potential of computational media? Yeah. Um, that to me is kind of more of where my head is because I'm constantly thinking about different applications. Uh, and my students who are now in every place from senior vice presidents at, at uh, Microsoft to uh, uh, chief programmers at large um, video game companies to uh, a couple of AI researchers and others, you know, it's it's kind of like, what do you do with what you've learned? Where are you going to take it? That's kind of what's my interest. No, and I and I get it. But, you know, I, I will tell you, there's sort of a double purpose with my question. One is I'm actually curious about what an expert in the field really does to to stay, stay, stay an expert. The other larger question is, and I've been fascinated with this for a long time, is, is there, you know, once I've asked this question of 
a sufficient amount of experts? Can I find patterns? This is my research question. You know, this is where I'm really intrigued. Can I, in these nuggets, find something that makes me or, or anybody else uh, collectively kind of able to, to build more of the, the type of polymath and polymathic sort of wisdom that I do think we need as a society. So it's much larger. And I think that's ho hopefully ties into what you're interested in. It's much larger than just, oh, can I as an individual get ahead and understand stuff? It is more, we truly need to understand what's happening to our worlds and, and not just, you know, not just the students that go to MIT. I think this is a larger question. If we don't, you know, and, and it's usually seen as like, you know, understand STEM. But I, I just find that STEM, the way many people see it, is very instrumental. So that's actually a whole other story. But, you know, some of the things we have just talked about, it illustrates how if you're going to have any kind of wide, wise understanding of where this is going or, or where we have been with STEM, you don't start with STEM. You start with human nature, psychology, biophysics. You start with the real basic building blocks. And that fascinates. No, I really want to talk about where you start. You start with allowing a child to imagine themselves as not only interested in an area, but safe to be interested in an area, supported right. to be interested in it, to the point that you were making about your own children and your own father. I think that this is one of the areas where there's not enough attention we need, which is, you know, everybody talks about education. But then they have different interpretations of what education means. Yeah. Right. So it's a pity that we don't have more of a universal sense of the minimum standard that we want to see in certain children by certain ages, because we somehow, and I mean, this is the politically incorrect thing, but I'm, I'm old fashioned and I'm old enough not to give a crap anymore. You know what I mean? I've, Sure. You know, I've, ha I've had my 15 minutes, so what people think of me to a certain extent is like, whatever. You know what I mean? It's like you're not 20. Yeah. You know, everybody doesn't have to love you. The, the point is, is that I just think that we're getting away sometimes from a truly merit-based society, merit-based education. We make up all these excuses for why children fail, but we don't look at the people who are teaching them in terms of, why are you failing the students and the students are failing themselves? It's not one or the other. It's both. And you don't have a five-year-old who goes into class with an intention to fail every single thing they do. No, I, I think you're right about that. But it's also about, and, you know, when they set up common core standards, it's the kind of, it's the stuff one focuses on as well, right? Because I'm assuming, you know, if you had your way, it wouldn't, it, 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 there's there's something you kind of have to know because with the, you know sort of like related to kind of improvisation if you don't know the basics you can't actually improvise on the important stuff so there is a common core and and that I agree with you there, there the, is the a thing is that might fluctuate a little bit what that actually means yeah but you know from from Scandinavian schools because I know you know even though of course Sweden Norway and Denmark never considered together except that you all can read and speak and sort of understand one another's languages. Sure, even sure. though you don't always admit it. Um, remember, I had offices in Denmark, so no good amount of yeah. things. Nevertheless, the point is, is that if you look at a place like India or you look at a place like China, they both have absolutely in, enmeshed in case programs 
where they look for their bright children as early as kindergarten, pre-kindergarten. And when they find children who are of the one, two, three, four, five percent, they basically put them into the Olympic standard of we're gonna we're gonna take care of your schooling for the rest of your life. We want you to be our best and brightest. Right. We have a confusion in this country. So it's not accidental that if you look at a place like India with the number of people that they have, one percent of India's top students, excuse me, five percent of India's top students are greater than the total number of students in the United States. Now, if that doesn't scare the crap out of you, then right. you don't understand how numbers work. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that is interesting. I mean, Norway, to take one, right, does this only for sports and typically only for winter sports, but they've started to do it now for so summer sports and the results have been incredible, right? Because there's smart people in Norway and there's also smart coaches, plus the culture, once you kind of pick people out, the way that they coach you is actually very good. So they, you know, there, there's been outsized results for things like winter sports, uh, not just in the obvious things. And there are many explanations why we have good cross-country skiers, but, but not the least, everything changed once they put in place exactly the kind of model that you talked about for India, because it's just simply not true. You know, there's a folk explanation. I actually come from that area of Norway where we have the most Olympic winners. So I know that, and I was never in, in that caliber, but I would tell you, I ran around, cross-country skiing was my life during winter, and I created paths around my uh, house, you know, outside my, my, my house on the property. But that alone doesn't explain it, right? It, was, it only got to Olympic level systematically over many years when they put those kinds of people early, not early, but at some stage, once they had done their kind of youth competitions, then they got into this very structured kind of Olympic program. And that has given enormous results, even for a tiny country. So I know these things can be done if you just prioritize them. The sad thing for me, who cares about technology, is that no one has thought to do the same thing for innovation or science or, or any remotely useful area beyond sports. So are you talking about in Norway? Or you in Norway and Scandinavia, States, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, but look, at, look here. See, the same thing in the United States is that we give a lot of lip service to the importance of education. And then we kind of sully it and, and hide it by trying to take the position we conflate no child left behind with what we're talking about in terms of excellence and merit. Well, the and, U.S. Has, has, you know, gotten itself into a real pickle with lots of things. But, you know, one is this enormous dependence on outside talent, right? It, the, the U.S. school system in and of itself is actually pretty horrendous. I know I've been part of, you know, a, a decent part of it. I've, you know, gone to schools there and I've had good and bad experiences. But the point is, we would never be able to sustain MITs and Harvards if it wasn't for the influx of talent from, from these places that you were just talking about. So th this whole thing is kind of an inflated bubble. The, the moment, actually, immigration, which it I, right now is, if this continues, there could be a massive implosion of, of the Ivy Leagues and, and of, of scientific progress in the U.S., the likes of which we have never seen. And it could actually happen in this decade. If, if well, I mean, wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is actually well, very, um, it's fueled by outside talent for sure. 
Yeah, so it's, it, I agree with you. It's, it's a part of a larger conversation, but it is extremely, extremely uh, troubling that we have this, we have this way now of trying to make one size fits all. You know, in other words, we interpret something that's very complex and we try and apply single rules to it, yeah. right? Because at a place like MIT, uh, you know, I, I actually have a couple of colleagues on the engineering department side, one of whom was luckily able to be hired back into the MIT uh, faculty, but only after being sent away after getting his PhD at MIT, because the United States government thought that he should go back to China. Now, <laughs> right. you know, so, so my point is, is here you had this truly, and I use the term rarely brilliant uh, PhD student who had so much to add. To and wanted to be with um, with his procept, you know, at school, yeah. Uh, because of because of the nature of, of Chinese family, he considered him his second father, um, and and that's the way his own family thought about it. And here he is wanting to make application to do his postdoctoral studies and to potentially teach at a at a arguably you know phenomenally first class university. And he's being turned down and sent back to his host country. And yet other people who have far less to offer the country are being allowed in for political versus merit reasons. Yeah. And I have a big problem with this. My, my, you know, it's, it's very non-politically correct these days, but it's true that not every single person in the world is the same anymore than all dogs are the same. Well, mean I mean, actually, I think your position is now becoming the politically correct, right? Because after the lawsuits of Ivy League institutions, I think that this type of affirmative action for, uh, you know, that there's a, at least there's a massive discussion on either side, you know, right now of whether, uh, you know, what merit means, if merit means, you know, uh, affirm, uh, affirmative action affirmative on either action, side. Right, right. So, but I mean, so see, I, when you... Yeah. All that I'm saying is, is that these are complex discussions. These are not discussions you have in front of television cameras in Congress so that you can make brownie points. Right. These are these are much larger discussions because whether people like it or not, the 21st century is upon us, and the 21st century is nothing like the 20th, and nothing like the 19th. Well, and everybody that... looks at right. Everybody looks at the way the trajectory of the way futurism has gone and technology has gone. My answer to so many of these people is you cannot understand where the future is going unless you have a good sense of the past, but you can't judge the future on the past alone because the future has many things available to the people of the time that the past never did. Yeah. Right. I mean, we can talk about, you know, the numbers and other things, but it's a very complicated discussion. And I don't think people in, in politics are are able to have this discussion without real experts to come in and have the discussion in front of them. And well, I think you and I have both tried, right? I mean, I've, I've advised parliaments in many European countries, I, both as a government think tank representative and as a public policy person for Oracle. And I've also been inside of government, right, in the Norway and in the EU. And this is an intractable problem because in the EU, there are actually a lot of PhDs and very seriously thinking people, but they are, of course, stuck within a 
uh, you know, bureaucracy where even though they may have these very interesting and deep discussions, it doesn't go very far because the EU actually has institutionalized a very, very serious exploration of knowledge. You'd be surprised. I mean, there are many deep discussion projects being sponsored. The problem is, of course, once it surfaces to the highest political levels, even there, you know, the European Commission is a very much of a political structure, meaning those arguments, they die very fast at the higher levels. So, you know, you're, the problem is you can have these deep discussions, but they don't make it all the way up. Well, also remember that, as you said, um, you're taking something that by its nature needs to be discussed in a true Socratic way by, right. by people who are trained in that sort of dialogue. And you're bringing it to people in Brussels who have no particular interest. Yeah, well, they, yes, they have no particular interest. They may even have the interest, Chris, but it is that they don't have the language tools and they're not motivated to, or even if they have the interest on an off conversation, you know, in front of the fireplace, when they get out their political tools, they have nothing to, to use it for and with. They, they just don't, it doesn't fit, right? That it's a, a logic that is a binary logic in many ways, and it doesn't fit this kind of discussion. So I, well, that is, I think, the real challenge that if we now arguably are moving in a 20 into a 21st century that is so much more complex how could we leave the political tools at the same level of granularity that we had it in the 20th and in the 19th i mean that doesn't make any sense well you know to the point that you were making about ai um because it ties into a little bit of, of what you're talking about you know the the dangerous and uh, kind of often somewhat ignored undercurrent is that the countries in the world, the few countries who have great interest in becoming the world powers over and above uh, certain developed countries in the EU, the United States, they're working assiduously to create systems that are going to outmaneuver exactly what it is we're talking about because they see the discord. They, they see that people are having trouble getting on the same page in terms of what needs to be done. They don't have that problem. They're in autocratic regimes. Right. And this is, this is one of these arguments from the standpoint of, at the same time that what you say is absolutely true, and I agree with you, I, I agree that this is, a, this is politically very difficult because it's, it's not just an academic conversation, it's sort of a much larger conversation. But among the people who are trying to have the dialogue, it doesn't mean that other people contextually are not advancing, regardless of whether or not our dialogue is stymied. Yeah. So, you know, whether whether the pitcher hits the stone or the stone hits the pitcher, it's going to be bad for the pitcher. Well, I would arguably say it's bad for both, right? Because one is not getting the benefit of you know, of, of what they were thinking and the potential is just not realized. And the other obviously is um, also limiting themselves. So something has to give here. Uh, it's a larger discussion. Can happen. You know, 21st century is upon us. We, we ignore it at our, at our peril. We have these discussions and then people turn back and they go, no, no, but our intentions were really good. 
Right. Well, so so that is, of course, something that would maybe we should explore in our uh, part two. And I, I'm going to ask you about this in a second, you know, how we do this with part one, part two, because I think a lot of what we just talked about now, you know, unless you have particular sections that you think were absolutely inappropriate, we can discuss. I think most of our discussion now is actually very relevant for, for everybody. It, it wasn't a prep discussion. This is a, this was a real discussion. Um, but anyway, the, the question, you know, so where is the 21st century going? It's going to definitely reshape who's in charge, but it's not necessarily going in a direction that you and I would be happy with. In other words, the powers may shift, but it may just be another binary, ridiculous logic, right? It may be another two-party system in the U.S., God forbid, right? That still just kind of talks about left and right and and isn't really, you know, capable. Or it could be in other countries, right? There's going to be winners and losers of of COVID as well. But the point is there's, there's nothing to say that we're essentially evolving into a more advanced system. We're just going to have these parallel system of the scientific system, super advanced and the political system operating kind of, uh, you know, on on its own sphere orthogonally. Listen, I don't disagree. I mean, the problem is, is that it depends upon whether or not you want to get yourself into a, into kind of an enhanced depressed state sometimes because the issue, the issue to a certain extent is, is that you have the greatest advancements in science, for instance, that have ever been seen in the history of mankind. Right? right. I mean, the, sure. the elemental building blocks of nature are becoming more known to us, even if we don't fully understand every aspect of them. We're, we're able to actually start teasing at them, looking yep. at them. So on the one hand, it's it's brilliant, it's wonderful, it's remarkable. It's, it's the embodiment of where we've been coming since the, the, the time of the Renaissance, right? But the other side of it is, is that we're mired in the root blood of the air. You know what I mean? As Yates might say. And, and we have people who refuse to accept some of where we need to go. At the same time, we have others who want to take a position that may be philosophic. And the two sides aren't necessarily talking to one another, you know, and this is a, this is potentially a larger problem because, you know, and as I said, this is a much bigger conversation, but there was a time when the vast majority of mankind, you take somebody in the time of the 17th century, somebody like a Bach, for instance. No, you know, Bach went to Weimar, went to Kotern, but Bach never really traveled outside of 30, 30 kilometers from where Bach was born. Handel was different. Handel was all over the damn place, right? Taking advantage of, you know, modern transportation. And it's reflected to a certain extent if you want to look deeply into their music. You know, I trust science, but I have a degree in ethnomusicology, so I always see some of this stuff through the the symbolism of music. But the point is, is that human beings, an argument could be made, were never really meant to travel so rapidly outside their area of the sphere of influence that they had. And to a certain extent, the politics were moderated by the transportation inefficiencies. You've eliminated the transportation inefficiencies in the world now. Any idiot has the same capacity to talk to every other idiot as any intelligent person. 
And there are sure. a lot more idiots than there are intelligent people in the world. Right. So you're saying to, to a certain degree, our, our communication means has, uh, in, in that sense, have been an equalizer. This is a little bit about technology as a double-edged sword, right? You're, you're exactly. building something that becomes this massive platform. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it's, it's sort of like it uh, is uh, unfair in some aspects, but it also raises all boats in some important aspects, right? Because it's not like technology's opportunities like we were talking about, you know, STEM. You have to have a fairly sophisticated understanding to really utilize it. But some of the other benefits of these baseline platform technologies, like a transportation system, become by their very nature available. And telcos, which you've worked on, they just become available. Like every, you know, everybody has a smartphone right now and have a, a computer so advanced that we would previously, you know, only IBM had such a computer. Now we all have it in, in our pockets. It's astounding how little we use that to our advantage. But on the other hand, because it's there, everybody kind of has access to this enormous weapon, this tool. Right. What do and, we use and, it for? And you just use some very interesting words side by side, weapon or tool. And I think, I think I find you're absolutely it, right. It's, it's both. It's both. Right. It's both. I mean, can you imagine how the Stasi, for instance, or the CIA would love to have the same kind of documentation that Google and Facebook have on us? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so as you said, there's a process of, for want of a better term, digestion within our, within our quasi-modern society. We have more information available to people than at any time in the history of mankind available to an individual. And yet, we've never had so many people who are virtually uninformed because they don't have the capacity to understand how to do the research. They have not been trained in the Boolean filters. So everything comes through. But you know what I want to tie this back to, Chris, is this idea that the Smithsonian is charging you with. I would say one thing is, you know, uh, video games, but the stuff we're talking about now arguably is also not archived anywhere or, 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 or really understood. So we're going through this and, and it was fascinating. You said, you know, we are in a new renaissance, essentially. I, I, I agree with you with that. It's a hard argument to make and, you know, who can, who can disprove us, right? So you can just, you know, there have been effervescence before times in history, but I do think the last decade and this decade are going to arguably be looked upon as very, very formative in the human experience. The problem, however, and I'd lo love to hear your view on this, how are we documenting all this? Because yes, Google and Amazon, you know, arguably have a lot of this information. Who knows how much the NSA has? Probably less than we think, actually. Um, but the point is, how much do museums have and how much mu will museums ever get? I, I don't know that they are even collecting the right kind of data. You, you know what I'm saying? Because there's this internet project in Norway, I know, and they keep archiving web pages. And they put it, you know, in Svalbard, you know, in that, uh, you know, doomsday uh, cave there. But the point is, they're archiving just simply web pages. And what we're talking about now is the flow of information that goes far beyond just the static, right? We're talking about the messages, the conversation, all the stuff that an Amazon would report in my Alexa right now, 
or, or, or what's happening on Google searches. Where is that stuff going? And who is, who is looking at it from a different point of view than just commercially? Like, I want to make the next chatbot. Well, that's not really the question, is it? Right? You know, where's humanity actually moving with this stuff? So now you know one of the reasons that I was uh, able to talk luckily to, you know, ultimately a lot of this modern technology, it comes down, thank God, to people. And right. I was fortunate enough to find a couple of people at the Smithsonian in the Lemelson Center for the Study of Innovation and Invention, right, that saw the benefit of this. and. Did a you know we're early on sort of you know desirous of doing tests, but have been rewarded with understanding that the original thesis has been proven to be not only right, but but right to an extent that they previously had not imagined. And now this is kind of like a favorite small favorite project uh, in the center for the simple reason that we're we're able to actually put real materiality to the concept. You know, in other words, we replace the philosophy alone with the actual information that we're basically getting from people who in this case created uh, what's come to be a massive industry with all these different plungers. I hope other people do it. I got to tell you, but you know, this is one of those things where, you know, the Talmud talks about the fabric of the world needing repair, but no one person can repair the fabric of the world. So it, it urges people to try and take responsibility for a single thread with the theory being that if we, Every one of us takes responsibility for one thread. We have a chance of preparing the fabric. That's kind of my mantra. I'm just my one little thread. Well, I think on that note, it's a it's an important thread, Chris. I think th this is this is fascinating. I don't want to um, I don't want to cut off this discussion, but I also know you know I want to be respectful of your time here. I think this is a part one, Chris, to be honest. I, I will listen to this, but honestly, this is a part one. And then hopefully, if you're interested, we'll do a part two that's slightly more structured around some of the things we initially had, had, had thought about. But this is, I find it fascinating, which I think means that others might find it too. I hope to play my little part in what you just said, by the way. The, the podcast medium is long form and it has these reflections. I cannot believe that I didn't start podcasting 20 years ago, not 10 like 20, the amount of conversations that I've had with smart people, you know, and, and not smart people, but the point is these conversations that somehow get themselves into interesting territory and then they all get lost because they were pre-Google and Alexa and pre-whatever recording medium. This is actually a time in history where if we were just able to record the right conversation, not every conversation, we would have a little bit of a historical picture that one didn't have in 1899 with uh, Orville Wright. So that if you now happen to invent, you know, make another massive discovery, I know that we had this discussion and I can go back and say, well, I talked to him a year before Chris came up with this new thing. And I have a little bit of an inkling. And if I talk to you a year after you've made this invention, maybe I have a little bit of an inkling. Now, that kind of data just wasn't available for Orville Wright. And, yeah, and I think that's no, what no, we're I talking agree. about. No, no. And, and see, if you think about it, Tron, maybe this is your thread. Might be. Right? It might be. And I, right? Because, because I don't disagree with you at all. I think that it's very important for people to hear some of these, discuss these discussions from people who don't have any obvious acts to grow on. 
even right. especially non non political people, people right. who simply, you know, you want the best for society at large, and you desperately look for the way that you might participate in helping it on some level. And you just right. need to find people who think that way from the standpoint of we all, you know, if you think about it. I know a lot of people are very satisfied with going on in life and cheating and stealing and making enough so that, you know, they get the, whatever the hell they consider great, you know, the jet planes or the cigars or whatever the hell it is somebody considers successful. But there's also an aspect to it, especially as you get older. It's like you look at yourself and you go, why was I here? Why was all this, why was all this education invested in me? I yeah. got a material, I have to have some effect. Right. It's beneficial. And I don't mean this in a self-aggrandizing way. I mean it as kind of pay it forward way. Yeah. Right? I think you're right. And I fortunately I think some people do think that way. But the thing is, you have to have a combination of thinking that way and then being in the right position to actually hold on to a thread or create a thread. And uh, you know, I'm not gonna hide. It's it's difficult to know whether you've found that thread. So hopefully I have found it here. I the COVID moment for me, and you know, this is late in in my days too. I mean, what I'm 47, uh, finding meaning in you know what you're really gonna do. But to have three small kids around COVID has really reshaped what what I look at. And it's not like I, I think I've always searched for trying to find that thread that could be my thread. And I've been less, much less motivated by sort of financial gain to, to, to perhaps to my detriment. But on the other hand, I feel very motivated right now in this moment in history. And I feel very responsible and, and frankly, quite saddened by what, what has happened and, and kind of humankind's collective guilt, I think, in, in sort of having created this world that is touching so many elements that we don't have control over. Like if, if this truly is a zoonotic spillover, how can I have three kids in this world and not try to do something about that? And, and, and try to just, so back to your Tal Talmudian uh, comment, right? I mean, I think we have a responsibility at this very hour to at least do our best, even if it's just documenting the fall of civilization, which it's a fairly true possibility if we don't get this under control, we will have a very different next 30 years. I previously sort of thought it was the next decade, but you know, this thing may never go away. So, you know, how are we going to do this? Hopefully the U.S. will lead this science-based vengeance on the virus. And I hope that that happens. Should it not happen, however, <laughs> we're going to have to have very different conversations about how to just live in this new reality. And, uh, I don't dis I don't disagree at all. I, uh, from the standpoint of COVID, I'm extremely hopeful yeah. that there are so many phase three trials right now. I and mean, this is, you know, uh, in the old days when I used to be in Washington and, and uh, I was chief engineer to the Congress, I had a lot of access to uh, OTA and some other. Well, OTA doesn't even exist anymore. But the point is, is that is that um, I had a pretty good idea about the way things work through FTA. This is remarkable. I don't care what anybody says. The rapidity and speed, both from the standpoint of the technology and uh, kind of uh, bureaucrats getting out of their own way to hopefully allow us the benefit of it, is really quite remarkable and noteworthy because it gives me some hope that even in times of trouble, you know, people who would constrain development are willing to get out of the way for the for the. I mean, this good. is this is like 
way beyond a Hollywood movie. Like you cannot make this up. Like if you've watched all these scenarios of like, you know, there's a coming, you know, there's a, you know, foreign object coming right, to, right, towards right, earth right. and all that right. stuff. Well, this, no movie could have made this up, but right? yeah. the amount of scientists that, well, they either dropped everything or their funding froze up. So they just rationally dropped everything, right? I mean, you, you can't work in cancer research when no one's financing the next six months or you can't go back to your lab unless you have a clearance to work on COVID. So it, it's sort of both this rational decision that the world scientists made and the fact that they all literally probably came together and said, this, regardless what politics says about this, this is an existential threat to my family, to my country, to the world. What can I do? See, and, and this part of it, in, in a time that you look for things to give you a sense of hope, right? Because so many, of the, so many of the issues surrounding us seem kind of out of our control. Yeah. And when you see something like this, around, literally around the world, you know, right. China, forget China for the minute in terms of, you know, why and could they have done something? Yes, yes, yes. But rather than just go into that, look at the rest of the world. The world, for all intents and purposes, is pulled together on on the basis of scientists to scientists needing to do something, as you said, because of, to, the, to your point, a, a virtually existential threat. And it has given me such a sense of hope in the sense that there are still ways for disparate people with disparate politics to work together for the common good. It's actually been one of the few things I've been looking at, you know, and smiling inside. That's, I'm so glad you said that. Um, and I think maybe leave it on that note, because there are, of course, other aspects not related to the science, not just the politics, but there are these cultural and social dynamic uh, aspects where, where some of it has been extremely positive, but some, you know, in the US, for instance, and it's not just politics, it's mixed in with kind of the, our way of life. There's also this resistance uh, on a negative side that that really challenges the concept of, of public health right we haven't been able to implement even the most rational based public uh, health measures because people not just for political purpose but for cultural reasons are resisting so on that note i think there needs to be some more creative thought on the social engineering aspects and maybe explaining aspects of you know where are we as a you know as a society right now but I would say on the pure scientific part, things are going very, very um, smoothly and, and are very, very encouraging. I would hope, however, that the debate elevates in terms of how we as a more multidisciplinary discussion, you know, are going to have to upgrade our, may not even just be public health. It's just, you know, rationally, do, how do you want to live the next 30 years? Do you, let's just collectively decide what we're going to do. And it's not just about the, well, the vaccine, are you going to take it or not? But are you going to wear the mask or not? Are you going to do all of these other things? That's for me, don't even, they're not choices. They're like the moment the evidence emerges, I just do it. But I see anybody from, you know, sometimes even you know, family members and beyond it. These are, complicated issues for people and they make different choices than i do now should we just accept it or should we fight it or should we go into a socratic dialogue i fear socratic dialogue is going to happen and it's going to take a while right i i don't disagree with you i mean 
you know, it's very tough for me sometimes to get into the head of somebody who would look in the face of data and science and simply go, no, I, I it just, it, I just have trouble with that. You know what I mean? But we the, have to the, take the it seriously. Of the world. But we have, have to take it seriously. We I have to. I completely agree. But taking it seriously, look, this gets back to where we were coming from. A large part of this has to do with education. Your willingness to accept data, your willingness to be logical in the face of, for instance, adversity, where do you go? And, and that's my, sometimes, look, I'm all for feelings. You know what I mean? I think feelings are good. I think hugging trees are good. I think singing kumbia is good, but it depends upon the context. Yeah. And, and people don't seem to be willing to appreciate that there is a context to the understanding of certain kinds of issues that don't always lend themselves to the exact same tools. So to the point that you made, listen, I'd rather think about it on the positive side, which is, is I'm looking at the alacrity with which the science, the biological and science community um, is working to basically immunosuppress, you know, in other words, develop a vaccine, use CRISPR and new technologies that have never really been available this kind of a thing on a level that's never been available. And I'm sitting back and I'm smiling to myself, seeing that when there, you know, this whole business about when there's a will, there's a way. I'm so, I'm so thankful that we have so many people who have been so well trained in this area to be able to help the rest of us who are not in the area. And I'm hopeful, very hopeful, that if we're fortunate enough to come up with a multiplicity of vaccines that are effective, that people sit back and for, for one moment think to themselves, wow, this was amazing. It worked. How, where else can we apply this logic to the benefit of humankind? That, I mean, that, that might be worth it in and of itself, right? If one could come out with a narrative, general Let's narrative hope. like that. Chris, it's been thoroughly fascinating for me to talk with you. I hope we get a chance to talk again. I will um, send a message to that effect. This is in and of itself been a wonderful discussion and I consider it stage one of, of, of many more to come. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Really nice talking to you. Take Likewise. care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. You have just listened to episode 29 of the Futurized podcast with hosts Trond Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of computational media, part one. Our guest was Chris Weaver, professor at Wesleyan University and director of Smithsonian Video Game Pioneers Initiative, as well as a research scientist at MIT Microphotonics Center. In this conversation, which I initially had planned as a prep call, we go deep. We talk about Chris's early opportunity to shape the futuristic thinking at ABC, the television network, his pioneering role as a video game company founder, as well as his new role capturing the important recent history of video games. These are a key to understanding both the 20th and the 21st century. Finally, we talked about how and why to teach our kids about computational media and the great challenge of making the complexity of the scientific system communicate with a binary political system that always looks for simple answers. My takeaway is that the complexity of computational media is still poorly understood in society. However, when it is, and it will be, great change can happen. 
Video games, for example, provide the potential for much more fundamental experiences than most of us think about. The lessons from the tech development, sensory exploration and the metacognition that ensues are already influencing several generations of software engineers. However, in order for that insight to reach our kids who are now playing these games, turning it into STEM insight, some translation work is needed. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.